addicted, exhibiting a compulsive, chronic, physiological, or a psychological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity, strongly inclined to do, use, or indulge in something repeatedly. No one strives to wake up as an addict, a junkie, or a drug dealer. These aren't life ambitions or goals that people set out to have. There are things that happen to each of us that mold us, that influence our decisions, that mark us either for greatness or for tragedy. There's a history as old as mankind that depicts just how susceptible we all are as humans to our basic needs and wants. The allure of drugs, of forgetting who we are for just a moment, of losing ourselves to the wonderlust of a high-induced cloud, to walling ourselves off from our own personal hells can be the overwhelming emotions as humans that lead us into the despair and spiral of addiction. This series explores the history, the emotional battles, the pain, and the success that comes from our human history of addiction. Welcome to episode one of Addicted, Midnight Oil and the History of Opium. In general, I strive for greatness and rational achievement, but I admit to you, I have a terrible fondness for women, a tendency towards drunkenness, and a weakness for the fumes of the poppy opium and other miserable beauties. Roman Pain Everything in life begins somewhere. There is always a beginning, a middle, and eventually an end. Even something as sinister as our very human obsession with drugs begins somewhere. Currently, our society is in the middle of the obsession, and the ending is unknown at this time. It's not a new societal thing for humans to want to get high. It's an ancient thing, a social tool that has its roots in groups of humans sitting out below the stars and by their early fires. It's a behavior that predates cars, electricity, social media, cell phones, and the hustle and bustle of modern times. Over 8,000 years ago, our ancient ancestors utilized ancient plants for medicinal purposes and even for pain relief. They may not have had the creature comforts we are now accustomed to, but they knew that there were natural plants available to them that could aid in their comfort and give them some relief. The Sumerians were the first civilizations to document their uses of medical plants, as were the ancient Egyptians, Chinese, Arabs, Indians, Romans, and the Greeks. All civilizations that were the origins for our modern practices with pharmaceuticals and medicine and even the foundations for many of our current governments and societies. The Sumerians documented in their clay tablets known as cuneiforms their first uses of a plant we now refer to as opium or, by its scientific name, Papaver siniferum. The Sumerians referred to the plant as Hulgil, which, when translated to English, loosely translate as the joy plant. 
indicating that even our ancient ancestors understood the narcotic effects of the plant. The opium poppy plant was native to Turkey, but was able to be grown all throughout East Asia and other regions of the Middle East, as well as some of the Eastern European nations. The plant was and is considered to be one of the most beautiful flowering plants. The opium poppy can be identified by its bright colors of blue or purple flowers and its toothed silver green foliage. The plant releases a milky substance that releases from its unripe seed pods that when cultivated and dried becomes what we all know to be the drug known as opium. Opium is a narcotic that when smoked can cause an immediate euphoric high. When ingested, the opium will also cause a euphoric rush and near immediate relief of pain throughout the body. It is a high very similar to that of the high induced by the drug heroin, which is another opiate class drug. The use of opium was mainly for medicinal purposes in ancient times, as it was basically a catch-all malady cure. Its pain-relieving properties alone were useful for those who suffered severe wounds from battles or accidents in ancient times, when emergency rooms were not in existence. The drug we now refer to as opium was cultivated in ancient times and utilized for pain relief, as well as other medicinal properties of the poppy plant, such as its analgesic abilities as well as its narcotic effects. The Sumerians would pass along their discovery and uses for the opium poppy plant to the Assyrians. The Assyrians would take the knowledge given about the opium plant and pass it along to others within the region, such as the Babylonians. Then, the Babylonians would pass the knowledge of the medical plant to the Egyptians. Some of the greatest civilizations to ever lived utilized the opium plant as a means to help aid those who suffered from pain, had to be subjected to surgery, or even just for recreational relaxation. In 1300 BC, the Egyptians would cultivate the plant and trade it with neighboring regions such as the Greeks, Minoans, and the Phocians. It would show to be a very lucrative plant even in its early years. Areas throughout the Middle East would boom with the harvesting of the opium plant. It would grow to become a source of income for many fledgling nations throughout that region. Not only was there a strong medical support through the early history of the poppy plant, but there was a magical belief in the plant as well. It was thought that the effects of opium would help to enhance one's mystical abilities and would even be used in many religious practices in ancient Neolithic times. The poppy plant was even used to treat insomnia, as well as used as a spice for food items such as baked goods, which we still see today, such as poppy muffins, bagels, and scones. Arab traders would help to spread the use of the poppy plant across many nations, utilizing it for trade with other nations and growing the world's dependence and desire on the poppy plant itself. In 460 BC, Hippocrates, a Greek physician 
who would come to be considered the father of medicine, would dismiss any of the magical superstitions that surrounded the opium plant. However, he did agree that the plant itself was useful in treating internal maladies and pain. Hippocrates would become the namesake for the medical field's Hippocratic Oath, which is still sworn by medical practitioners to this day. His faith in the opium plant from a medical standpoint would help to grow the use of opium to treat medical maladies throughout all of history into nowadays times. History has thousands of years worth of documentation around the use of opium. Although there was a 200 year spell in 1300s Europe where documentation around the use of opium ceased. Reason being that during and after the Spanish Inquisition, it was thought that anything from the East was evil. And so, no one discussed the plant during that time. In the 1500s, opium would find itself being smoked by the Portuguese people. They realized early on that smoking the plant would lead to a more intense and quicker high than just normal ingestion. This would spark the use of opium as a full-blown recreational drug when the opium was mixed with tobacco and then placed into tobacco pipes. The method would grow to be the main way opium was consumed by recreational users. This behavior would also lead to the use of opium being seen as a more taboo behavior during this time in history. People began to look down upon the practice, fearing that it would consume people with the evil from the eastern parts of the world. So for a time, opium smoking would become a hidden habit, an addiction that was not spoken about, but ingrained into the society of that time. During the Reformation period of history, documentation about the use of opium would begin to creep back into the history books. A man by the name of Paracelsus would utilize his knowledge from alchemy to change the medical field from that moment forward. His work would lead to the use of pharmaceuticals in the medical profession, as he was the one to realize that by combining minerals and chemicals, you could create what we now think of as cures which would later lead to the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, creating cure-alls with pills and various forms of medications built from chemistry and in its earlier times, alchemy. Paracelsus believed that what those around him would consider to be poison, to him those items could have potential to be a cure. He saw daily household poisons as a chance to utilize in medicine if combined in a perfect dosage with natural plants, such as the opium poppy, could change and become a cure instead of a death sentence. He is quoted as having stated, In all things there is a poison, and there is nothing without a poison. It depends only upon the dose whether a poison is a poison or not. It would be Paracelsus who learned that you could engineer the opium by combining it with alcohol, which would create a tincture that would come to be known as laudanum, 
a medication that was created by taking powdered opium and combining it with alcohol to create a brownish-red tincture. Laudanum was utilized by those in the medical profession to treat pain and to also be used as a cough suppressant, much as we use cough suppressants to this day. It was with this breakthrough in chemistry that would lead to the eventual discovery of morphine, which would later become one of the most widely used painkillers to this day. His creation would also lead to the abuse of the drug laudanum by Victorian Europeans. Elizabeth I was said to have purchased opium from the East in order to have it shipped to England. Laudanum would grow to become a valued choice of recreational drug by many Victorian Europeans. In 1680, English physician Thomas Sydenham would pick up where Paracelsus had left off. Sydenham learned that by taking opium, sherry, and various herbs, he could create a pill that would become known as Sydenham's Laudanum. The pill was used to cure many ailments of the time. Sydenham was quoted as stating, Of all the remedies it has pleased Almighty God to give man to relieve his suffering, none is so universal and so efficacious as opium. In the 1700s, the Chinese would be introduced to the practice of smoking opium from the Dutch. Its introduction would lead to the Emperor of China, Yung Cheng, to ban the smoking of the opium plant, and he went as far as to prohibit the sale of opium unless it was to be used in medical practices. 1753 introduced the opium plant to its new scientific name. Botanist Leonis would name the plant Papavar somniferum or sleep-inducing in his book Genera Plantarum. The opium plant was being shipped worldwide throughout the 1700s, from China to England, India to Persia, Opium was being shipped at staggering rates. Its uses had seemed to be endless, and physicians were toting the plant as a miracle cure-all. It was also picking up in its recreational uses as well. While many countries overwhelmingly supported the use of opium, others began to become weary of the plant. Chinese officials had begun to notice an increase in addiction rates among the population. Abuse of opium was occurring outside of the intended use for medical situations in growing numbers. The 1780s would begin to introduce the trade of many Chinese goods to Europe and to the Americas. As part of that trade, Chinese opium would quickly become a coveted item within the Americas. Other spices were also traded, but opium would be one of the main exports out of China during this point in history. That export would eventually begin to become tainted though. As throughout China, it was becoming recognized that the abuse of opium could lead 
to full-on addiction to those utilizing it for recreational use. 1799 would bring the full ban of opium in China. Emperor Kai King made it so that even the cultivation of the plant was illegal in hopes of slowing down the increasing epidemic of opium addiction in the region. China was the first nation to recognize the potential for harm from the poppy plant when smoked or ingested at high rates and amounts. Addiction was starting to become a part of the opium culture, and it showed there was a seedy side to the miracle cure opium that it was once thought to be. Ignoring the lessons of Chinese culture on the use of opium, Europeans would still hail the drug as a cultural norm of Victorian society. Victorian England would become rife with opium dens, places of leisure where citizens could go to smoke opium and lose themselves into the allure of the euphoric high opium created. An epidemic was brewing even in Victorian circles at the time, but it went largely unrecognized as the opium trade was too lucrative to just walk away from. Europe and even the Americas were now leading purchasers of opium throughout the world. Like many epidemics, the opium epidemic would grow due to the increased availability of the drug, and of course, the increase in wealth delivered from the sales of the drug to everyday citizens, and the medical profession throughout China, Europe, and the Americas. In 1803, opium would once more take another further leap in the medical research field. Scientist and researcher Frederick Sturchener of Germany discovered that by dissolving opium in acid and in neutralizing the drug with ammonia, he could create an even more potent drug, alkaloids principium Siniferum, also known as the drug morphine. Doctors now felt that they had mastered full control over the opium drug and had even perfected it to be God's own medicine. They thought that it was relatively safe and the effects would be so long-lasting that it seemed it was a ready-made miracle cure once more and far better than opium in its original form. Morphine was now the approved drug utilized by physicians to treat all chronic pain and surgical ailments. In 1827, E. American Company of Darmstadt, Germany, would formally be the first company to market the opium derivative of morphine as a pharmaceutical drug, beginning the world's dependence on opioids for treatment in a medical setting. In the early 1800s, recreational use of opium would also continue to soar. It seems that the drug wasn't just a great cure-all, but the high alone made it coveted for regular daily use. What many didn't realize is that they had come to grow addicted to opium and the many ways they could get high from the drug. The literary world would also be taken by storm with the use of opium. 
many famous writers would find themselves drawn into the lull of the euphoric high of the drug. And then, not long after, find themselves full-blown addicts to the once innocuous lull of opium. Addiction to opium was making its way into every crevice of 19th century life. In 1821, British novelist Thomas Day Quincy would publish one of his most notable works on his own struggles with addiction to opium in his piece, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. The biography was born out of his own dependence on the drug to curb the severe pain he felt due to a disease called trigeminal neuralgia, which would cause severe pain to the facial muscles that would often cause those inflicted with the disease to take their own lives due to the pain. Famed British writer Charles Dickens would also face a battle of addiction to opium. He would often take to his study after hours and smoke a hookah filled with opium and smoke until he would retire to bed. His addiction to opium and the act of being elevated, which was the term used to describe the high from the drug, is thought to have led to the massive stroke he would suffer at only 58 years old. While many classic literary figures would succumb to their own addictions to opium, everyday citizens were also battling the epidemic. Opium dens were becoming a norm in both Western and Eastern cultures. The use of opium for recreational drug use was skyrocketing, and many users were suffering the effects of long-term drug addictions. Many governments were at wit's end trying to determine just how to curb the influence of the drug and its effects on the unknowing populations within their rule. Opium was everywhere in the 19th century. The medical world was relying on the drug heavily, and the recreational use was finding its way to all aspects of society. Like with many addictive substances, eventually it was found that the sale of opium was more lucrative than any other trade goods. With many people sporting an opium addiction, there was always a loyal following of those willing to purchase the drug. So, the trade of opium would become one of the biggest economic booms to strike the Western world. The 1800s would bring about two wars fought over the trade of opium, known as the Opium Wars. With the Chinese governments suppressing the local use and even sales of opium, It was directly impacting the largest exporters of opium from India into China, England, France, and the Americas. China's culture had grown to become one of the largest purchasers of opium in the world, and their country's ban on opium use and purchase immediately impacted the supply chain to the other nations. That ban would inevitably lead to the first of the opium wars with China. Addiction was spreading throughout mainland China, and all efforts to quell the population's dependence on opium were showing to be unfruitful. The sale of opium was illegal in China, but that was not deterring people from still purchasing the drug in order to fill the population's growing addiction to opiate use. 
the society was being greatly impacted by opium addiction. From the economic and societal aspects, opium was wreaking havoc on the people of China. In the spring of 1839, Chinese officials would destroy 20,000 pounds of opium housed in Canton by British traders. The destruction of the crates of opium would be the spark to ignite a war. The anger from both sides would fester over that year. British sailors would accidentally kill a Chinese villager later that year. The outrage from the Chinese government would cause a ripple effect felt throughout several nations. China wanted to try the sailors in the Chinese court systems, as the sailors had directly caused the death of a Chinese citizen. Europe knew this would be a death sentence to those sailors, and so, they refused to allow the trials to take place, outright refusing to turn over the sailors responsible to the Chinese authorities. In early 1840, tensions were high between both sides, with more and more skirmishes taking place between both cultures, clashing over the desire to both suppress and exploit opium sales. The conflict would escalate in mid-1840 when a British warship destroyed the Chinese blockades set up at the Pearl River Estuary in Hong Kong, China. After destroying the blockade, British forces invaded the area, occupying the area along the Pearl River as they made their way towards the city of Canton. During that time, negotiations between both sides were taking place but would be halted when in May of 1841, British soldiers would fully take the city. Once there, they would begin an assault on the neighboring city of Nanking. They would fully occupy and take the city as well, putting an end to any fighting between the two forces. In August of 1842, a peace treaty would be signed between China and Britain called the Treaty of Nanking. That treaty would give Britain the rights to the major ports in the area, as well as grant Britain the full ownership of Hong Kong Island to be held under British rule. The move would allow Britain to maintain and hold all access to those major trading ports in the area. Hong Kong would go on to be held under British rule from 1841 to 1997 when they would finally be granted freedom from the British monarchy. This successful occupation and treaty from the British forces would cause other nations to demand the same from China and give them mutual access to other ports within the area. It would cause China to become one of the major trading ports within the world, but at the cost of their freedom from other nations occupying their soil. Not satisfied with having taken one of the most lucrative trading posts in all the world, the British government wanted to push further into Chinese territories. In 1856, Chinese authorities would board a British vessel called the Arrow that was docked in Canton. Once on board, Chinese officials would arrest several Chinese citizens who were crew members of the ship. The Chinese officials would also lower the British flag that flew upon the ship, sparking a new feud with Britain. Once again, a British naval ship would sail into the estuary of the Pearl River, leading straight into Canton, China. 
Once there, the ship and its soldiers would bombard Canton yet again, increasing hostilities between China and Britain once more. No trading could take place as the two sides warred once more, in an act that would come to be the beginning of the Second Opium War. In 1856, Britain would not fight alone against Chinese forces. They would enlist the aid of France, who wanted a stake in the Chinese trade. France took advantage of the murder of a French missionary within Canton to excuse their joining of the Opium War, fighting alongside the British forces in hopes of gaining a larger piece of the opium trade. The tactic was successful. In 1858, Britain and France would force China into a treaty known as the Treaties of Tianjin. After British ships forced their way into the city of Tianjin and occupied the territory, the treaty would give Britain full rights to have foreign envoys stay in the city of Beijing. This new piece of the treaty would allow Western traders to travel within China and give them access to several new ports within the area. It would also allow them to force Chinese governments to reinstate the legalization of importing opium into China's city of Shanghai once more. This move would allow opium to once more wreak havoc among the citizens of China and grow the pockets of Britain and France as well as other Western nations once more. The Western world had come to realize that addiction could be a very lucrative business. When you controlled the substance, everyone wanted. Not happy with the amount of Chinese ports that they had acquired in recent decades in 1860, the British forces once more pushed further into mainland China. This time they had larger warships and both British and French troops would destroy the Dagu batteries, which were a series of six forts set along the Hahi River to protect the city of Tianjin. Once the forts were destroyed, British and French warships sailed through the river and proceeded into the city of Tianjin. From there, they would go on to occupy the city of Beijing. They would burn the emperor's summer palace to the ground, plundering everything they could from the grounds. The move would force China to sign yet another treaty with Britain and France, this time granting the countries the southern portion of the Kowloon Peninsula, which was a territory that lay next to the city of Hong Kong. The signing of the treaty would end the second of the Opium Wars but its effects would be felt over the next century, marking once more the unfair treaties forced upon the people of China from Western nations, all due to the greed to control the opium trade throughout the world. Opium use would once more skyrocket within the regions, with freedom to sell all over mainland China once more in control of the Western nations. Addiction to opium would begin to infiltrate all areas of the world where opium found itself landing. Research into the uses of opium would also increase over the next few decades. In 1874, English researcher C.R. Wright 
would be the first scientist to synthesize heroin or diacetyl morphine. He discovered just how to create the substance of heroin by boiling morphine over a stove. This would lead to the next biggest jump in opiate use. Morphine and heroin would manage to sink their hooks into unsuspecting populations around the world. Both drugs would be sold to the unknowing public as yet again another miracle cure. The substances would grow in medical use, and with that they would also find their ways into recreational use. Even under direct instruction and guidance of medical practitioners, users of morphine and heroin were both finding themselves becoming dependent upon the drugs. The opium trade had once more brought another epidemic upon the world. This one due to the class of drugs created out of the opium plant. The drugs morphine and heroin would soon replace the addictions of opium that many people had. And with that, the heroin and morphine epidemic was born. Those who suffer from opium addiction share many of the same symptoms that those with a morphine or heroin addiction do. Opium, like other derivatives of itself such as opiates, rewires one's brain to need the drug in order to fulfill the reward center of one's brain. One symptom of opium use is the decrease in the person's breathing to the point that the users of opium could become unconscious or possibly even die from oxygen deprivation. Symptoms of opium abuse are diarrhea, constipation, dry mouth, and confusion. The drug also causes dependence upon it, and over time, the user will need more and more to get high or elevated. That behavior inevitably can lead to health issues, such as withdrawal symptoms when you do not have the drug available, overdose due to larger intake of the drug, and cardiovascular, lung, and kidney deterioration with prolonged use of the narcotic. The mid-1800s would see an increase in the use of opium as a medical treatment during the Civil War in America. Nearly 10 million opium pills would be issued to members of the Union Army, assuring that many of the soldiers who happened to survive the war would return home with a raging addiction to opium after having been prescribed the medication. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, opium dens made their way to the United States. With the dens, the use of opium would significantly increase drug use, and with the addiction of opium would grow in the United States furthering the epidemic across the ocean and enslaving more and more people to the use of opium. In 1890s Boston, nearly 15% of all prescriptions written were for opiates. The epidemic was increasingly out of control, and so following the lines of China, the United States would formally ban the use of opium in 1914 with the Harrison Narcotic Act. Other nations would soon follow by banning the import, sale, and use of opium. The ban on opium would be the beginning of the United States' war on drugs, a controversial method utilized to try and curb the sale and use of drugs within the population. 
By this point in history, medical professionals were learning the negative long-term effect that could occur due to the overuse of opium and the knowledge would spur the decline of war prescribing opium to those suffered from pain. Instead, the pharmaceutical companies would take over pushing newer drugs as perfect cure-alls for all ailments. While opium use would decline, with the ban, its derivatives such as heroin and morphine would soar in use and prescriptions from medical professionals. Aspirin would be invented in 1899, also helping to bring forth the realization that perhaps opium was not necessarily the best treatment for pain relief. Realizing that opium was in fact a narcotic that would increase the user's dependence on the drug over time. It would go out of favor of use within the medical profession. Opium would grow to be replaced by drugs such as morphine and even heroin as they were both derivatives of opium but thought to be less addictive in nature. This misconception would bring about a new crisis within the epidemic we all know as addiction. There was now a new class of drug emerging referred to as opiates. Heroin and morphine would go on to change the world for the worse because their roots born in the pharmaceutical industry, their users finding themselves even more addicted to these classes of drugs than even the users of opium had been. Two drugs that were once marketed as a cure-all for all ailments would negatively impact the 20th century, forever leaving track marks in the arms of our society and creating a history of drug addiction, suffering, and pain all of their own. We will tackle these drug histories further in our episode, Addicted, Brown Sugar, and the White Lady, The History of Morphine and Heroin. If you or someone you know is suffering from a drug addiction and would like to seek substance abuse help, please reach out to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Their website is samhsa.gov. You are not alone.